0: This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io and Quantstamp.
1: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has thrust cryptocurrencies into the global spotlight. People on both sides of the conflict are turning to Bitcoin, Ether, and stablecoins as a financial lifeline. And the pros and cons of that are being debated at the highest levels. There's been a surge of crypto donations into Ukraine to pay both for humanitarian needs and for the resistance. And in Russia, which is reeling under the weight of unprecedented financial sanctions, crypto is viewed as both a way for leaders to avoid that dragnet and an outlet for ordinary people whose savings are now hard to tap amid an intensifying banking crisis. And we've seen Ukrainian officials call on non-Russian crypto exchanges and other entities to block the accounts of Russian exchanges to cut off this potential lifeline to the Kremlin and its backers. Various US exchanges have responded to say that they won't do that without a direct order from US authorities. This raises questions about the crypto trade-off between transparency and security on the one hand and privacy and financial freedom on the other. That was the focus of last week's Money Reimagined newsletter. It also touches on the growing role played by blockchain forensics tools in tracking illicit transactions and helping authorities catch and block their beneficiaries. There are very few people better qualified to discuss this than Jonathan Levin, co-founder and chief strategy officer of Chainalysis, a firm that helps government agencies and other entities monitor and analyze often highly opaque blockchain transaction data. He's our guest today. But before we bring him on, hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So look, this is a very difficult time, but it's also an incredibly fast moving time. We say this sort of every time we get together, it's like, my God, this is fast, but this is unprecedented what we're talking about today. And, you know, I kind of wish we were recording this episode live. So this is one of these moments where, you know, you have to be straight with our viewers. This is a pre-recorded session and you will be getting this a few days afterwards because this horrifying situation is moving so quickly. And there's bound to be some new twist between now and when the pod comes out on Friday.
2: Yeah, this is definitely an hour by hour situation. I think it just spotlights how critical crypto has become as part of the conversation around geopolitics, around national security and around acute crises like the one that we're seeing right now. So I uh, couldn't agree with you more, but my hope is that the framing we're going to do today is going to provide a understanding at a level that will enable our listeners and viewers to follow more effectively what's happening in this space as it unfolds.
1: Absolutely. And then that's a good cue to get Jonathan in. So hello, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hi, Michael. Great to speak to you again.
1: You and I, we'd planned to do this last week. Uh, we were going to have a conversation around privacy and security questions. I think this was prompted by the Canadian trucker story and then Laura Shin's unveiling of the Dow attacker, but we punted it to today because of conflicting challenges, and then look what happened. We've now got this huge story on our plates. So we're thrilled to have you here because Chain Analysis surely has a unique window on what's happening. So on that basis, I thought maybe the first thing you could do is just give us a sense of what you're seeing. You have this ability to sort of really get a good picture of flows. So what are you seeing in terms of crypto flows into Ukraine and Russia?
3: Yeah, so I would say just to kick off, I mean, the fact that, you know, this becomes such a recurring theme uh, based on current news means that this topic is at the core of really, you know, what people should be thinking about when they think about cryptocurrencies. And, you know, there is unprecedented transparency available in understanding real-time what flows are occurring in the entire cryptocurrency economy. And that's really what what Chainalysis focuses on is is providing that map. And so when it comes to the state of play in, in Russia and the Ukraine, we publish a cryptocurrency adoption index. Both countries really do feature fairly highly on that in the top 20 In terms of how crypto is being adopted by these different countries and so and cryptocurrency penetration among the population, having given sort of other sort of confounding factors, is really high in these economies. And there are exchanges that are present that people know about cryptocurrency. So it wasn't surprising to me when the government of the Ukraine sort of went out onto social media and solicited donations in cryptocurrency, given you know, how much they had been focused on making this a core part of their digital strategy.
1: And and that was something that preceded this war. You'd seen this build up before then. What what sort of factors go into those index numbers that you have there?
3: Yeah. So so what we look at is really, you know, not just sort of the number of people uh, and trading volume inside those economies, but we also sort of benchmark it against also internet penetration inside those markets. And we look at, um, you know, how does specifically cryptocurrency fit into sort of the internet-enabled population in these different markets?
1: You know, and them being in this position in advance meant that they were just almost like primed for this moment to be absorbing so much of the crypto flows at this critical time. What have you seen in terms of like ruble and, you know, Ukrainian currency flows?
3: Yeah, so we're definitely seeing sort of an uptick in the overall volume in terms of like trading denominated in rubles. So you can see people moving in and out of you know, the ruble pairs. And you can see here that Ukraine has not been as prevalent because of the current situation. And so you can see here that there is an uptick in trading activity. This is not to be sort of conflated with on-chain movement. For everyone who's listening, designate this as two separate things As you you've got trading pairs which is about you know people taking positions on price movements you know trying to find the fair market price for this and with all of the news that's coming out on sanctions you know it's important that you know people are able to move in and out of you know these positions outside and you have you know speculators in some markets thinking that this is a short run thing and you have speculators in other parts of the market saying that this is the new normal so that does lead to an increase in trading volume Uh, that you're seeing denominated in rubles. That's not to be conflated with, you know, people actually taking cryptocurrency off Russian exchanges, moving it into other jurisdictions, which people would be very concerned about.
4: Nexo is the go-to platform for all things crypto. Invest in the hottest coins out there and start earning risk-free interest of up to 20% APR, paid out daily. Need cash ASAP but don't want to sell? Use your crypto as collateral and receive a credit line at premium rates. Open your Nexo account by March 31st and receive up to a $100 welcome bonus. Get started today at nexo.io. That's n e x o . i o. QuantStamp is hiring. Join the leading blockchain security company and help us secure the future of web3. Working for Quantstamp means a fully remote, flexible environment where creativity and effectiveness are valued. Our clients include projects like Ethereum 2.0, OpenSea, Maker, Aave, and Axie Infinity, and we offer compensation packages on par with big tech. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. That's quantstamp.com careers.
2: So Jonathan, this is clearly a lot of really valuable information, and so let's back up a little bit for our listeners and viewers, and maybe you can explain to them exactly what chain analysis does, kind of in a nutshell, but also how you get access to this information. Because one of the points I think a lot of us try to say on a regular basis is, you know, crypto is not necessarily the best suited tool for criminals or for those trying to, I don't know, for example, evade sanctions, right? And there are reasons for that. Uh, and chain analysis has really taken advantage of the fact that there is this transparency in the system. So. Perhaps walk us through what's visible and and how Chainalysis makes use of it.
3: Yeah. So for those people that are less familiar with with the business, we are the blockchain analysis company. We look at all of the different cryptocurrency transactions that are happening on these different blockchains, on Bitcoin, on Ethereum, and a bunch of other blockchains to really be able to give people the context about which services are actually being used to facilitate these types of transactions. So we look at sort of what are the main ways that people around the world are getting access to cryptocurrencies? What exchanges are they using? What types of payment processing are they using? And what smart contracts are they interacting with? And we provide that full map of all of that activity to a variety of different stakeholders inside the crypto economy. So we do help government agencies and regulators be able to have visibility into how and why people are using cryptocurrencies so that they can oversee the market. And we help private sector entities like exchanges and even broader platforms understand how their users are actually utilizing cryptocurrencies so that they can comply with anti-money laundering regulation and sanctions compliance.
1: Jonathan, it's obviously no surprise to you that there are certain people within the crypto community, certainly those of a libertarian bent, who perhaps look upon your work with not quite the same favorable perspective. I noticed uh, the title that Peter McCormack used for an episode in which you were interviewed for his podcast is something like, Is Analysis Evil? You know, and what we're dealing with here was just, I mentioned up before, the, the trade-off between this right to privacy and the need for transparency. And what you're really building on is this transparency side. So what do you say to those people, right? Those who say that this is somewhat antithetical to the principle of the freedom to transact because you're enabling the surveillance process.
3: Yeah, and in that interview with Peter, I laid out a lot of the facts about you know, how actually Chainalysis does the stuff that we do. You know, We look at all of the publicly available information on the blockchain and run models and, and AI to be able to understand you know, really how different transactions are linked, and then we provide that information to all of our customers as information. It's up to those customers, both on the private sector side and on the public sector side, to actually take the decisions about which of the transactions are risky that they need to report to government agencies and which of the transactions maybe governments are particularly interested in that they need to approach private sector entities for further information. And all that while, individual privacy is still possible given the data privacy regulations that there are on the exchanges and services that people are using. We at Chainalysis, we are looking at the publicly available data that exists on the blockchain. We're not looking at the personal information that people have to provide for KYC to exchanges. And that is being kept safe by data privacy regulation around the world.
2: So Jonathan, I think it's pretty safe to say, I I feel comfortable speaking for all three of us when I say that in this particular situation, uh, the good and bad guys, to be simplistic about this, are are pretty crystal clear in this conflict. And that's a view I think that's generally held by everybody, at least in the West. And so it might seem like a total no-brainer that tools like those that Chainalysis provides should be used to shut off Russians while helping Ukrainians. But that's complicated, it's not quite as simple as that, and there are a lot of, of second order effects. And for example, you know, the Department of Defense Bitcoin address, we can kind of take a look at this and think through how much money is being controlled by the Department of Defense here. You know, it's, it's just a really fascinating statistic, $8.7 million worth, uh, with more that's actually held separately in an ETH and addresses. And what we can see here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that a lot of this BTC has already been withdrawn. So here we've got a government globally that is seeming to crowdfund its war defenses. And that's, that's obviously a very different thing than some of the cases or cases we've talked about on this show, whether it's using Bitcoin to pay for education of girls in Afghanistan, we had Francesco on to talk about that, or whether it's helping humanitarian support post-disaster, you know, these kinds of cases. And so how do you think about the responsibilities of Chainalysis and your responsibilities as a leader of the company when it comes to these things and, and differentiating these different kinds of opportunities, and being sure that you don't inadvertently throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is to say, cast too wide of a net in terms of spotlighting some of the maybe more illicit activity or even dangerous activity, in contrast to some of the work that's happening that's pro-social and productive for society.
3: Yeah, and she does. It's a great question. I mean where we think about how people should use this technology is in a way that for dissidents and, and people that need protection, you know, they do need to take precaution when using this technology given how public it is, whether or not we are you know, looking at transactions that exist on the blockchain, but everyone can look at transactions that happen on the blockchain. And so you know, I think it's important for organizations entities and also people who are in dangerous situations to make sure that they are taking some precaution when using the technology that it's not necessarily falling into the wrong hands or or having an adversarial effect on what can be like a very critical situation so there are ways where again like privacy can be preserved to an extent while using this technology and people who are you know, using it for those purposes, do need to make sure that they're taking precaution as they do it. That being said, you know, I would say that the nature of the blockchain is such that you tie yourself to a certain degree of transparency. And if that transparency is not necessarily you're know, happening today, the blockchain is a permanent ledger. And so, you know, over time, it might be that that information could actually come to light eventually over time. And so people need to be very cognizant of that. We at Chainalysis, we think about mapping the services again, that people are using to actually access cryptocurrency. And we see that as largely sort of a, a neutral position. And then, you know, the usage of those services by individuals is something a little bit separate from what we do.
1: So I'd really like to drill down actually, if you can Jonathan, into that question of, you know, how, how do you maintain some level of privacy and yet you know, maintain as well, the need for accountability and transparency through the system and, and that societies themselves are protected in this way. But before I do, I just want to quickly point out just how completely remarkable, looking at, back at that, at that Bitcoin wallet that we were looking at a moment ago. like We are in unprecedented times, this crowdfunding moment, and they've moved most of those funds already out. Now, where we don't know, maybe they just moved another wallet, but the guys from CUNA Exchange are already saying that they've, they've already spent the funds, which is just incredible. People around the world paying money for the purchases of tanks and, and guns and things. But just getting back, like we were going to talk last week because I was focused on the story, Laura Shin's tremendous story that you guys helped out with in terms of tracking down the person who seems most likely, certainly allegedly, was the figure behind the Dow hack of 2016. And there was some responses there to say, my God, even this sophisticated cryptographer was unable to escape the power of forensics when you finally work this whole thing through which sort of brought me to think, you know, what, is it over? I mean, is, is there no way now that the technology in and of itself can keep anybody free? And that's possibly quite a good thing because it means people like that are completely disincentivized if they know that eventually they're going to get caught, right? But it does raise, again, the questions like, you know, what, what if the same problem emerges for these girls in Afghanistan, we were talking about on a show a couple of weeks ago. The same problems there. So and you came back to me, reached out to you, and you said, You don't think there is a trade-off between accountability, transparency, and privacy. Explain that. How do we get this happy medium where the transparency is there, but also people can feel as if they're not under some broad surveillance system?
3: Realistically, people are tied to a degree of transparency by using this technology. And that needs to just be acknowledged as there is a nature of the technology that exists the same way that... When you go on a website, like you are transmitting your IP address to the website that you're visiting, like this, you can then use certain levels of anonymizing technology in between. But we've also seen that typically on the internet, if you use something consistently and you're able to release some form of information to other people that are actually witnessing that activity. And so, like, you just need to acknowledge first and foremost that there is a degree of Transparency that exists by utilizing the technology. And then it gets down into in places that have rule of law and controls around what level of access different people can have to information from service providers, like that is really where we can have sort of high degrees of privacy, where personal privacy is guaranteed by certain service providers who actually are participating on these networks. And you can have a high degree of transparency that under due legal process, that information can be released. Where some people get confused is that there is sort of zero privacy if you use a regulated exchange in in the West, but actually they're under significant legal obligations to protect individual privacy in those settings. To be able for people to have their privacy as well as the transparency when law enforcement actually need it. And when people see these stories, like the Dow hack or if you looked at Bitfinex recovery, you know, a couple of weeks prior, in the event that the government has the requirement to be able to bring people to justice over, you know, very large crimes, yes, there is effort that can be exerted and legal processes served to service providers that do actually help unlock uh, these cases and bring accountability into the system.
2: So I feel like we have to talk about mixers, because certainly one of the ways that that some people have tried to evade some of this is is by using a mixer. And I think there was at least one misguided article in the mainstream press that I saw suggesting that the Russian government establishment could actually use mixers to fund some of this or or move money uh, quickly around. And so Uh, Maybe you could just explain for our listeners and viewers what a mixer is, just again, really high level, and then why you and I have already spoken about this, you know, earlier over the weekend, but why that doesn't really make any sense in this context. And and it is not a mechanism that that could be deployed effectively here.
3: Yeah. I mean, mixers are what they say on the tin, uh, a Bitcoin mixing service or an Ethereum mixing service essentially pulls together different people's funds and gives it back to people after a mixing process in a way that it's not necessarily linked to the transactions that were made to deposit money into the mixer. And so that's seen as an obfuscation method that kind of breaks the follow the money type analysis that is possible on different blockchains. The premise though means that there has to be a certain degree of liquidity a certain amount of money inside these mixers that are are needed in order to actually give people the anonymity that they want from using the mixer itself. You know, if you look at sort of the mixers that we have today in Bitcoin and Ethereum, you see that the volume that goes through these mixers on a daily basis, or even the total amount of liquidity, is nothing compared to you know the six hundred billion dollars that are sitting at the Central Bank of Russia. So in terms of people's ability to use mixers to obtain sort of a certain degree of privacy, you know, I would say that the liquidity is just not there for state-level actors to be able to, to significantly launder the proceeds just by putting it through a mixer.
1: Yeah, it's just another reminder of, you know, the fact that the real world is, is out there, right? We can we sort of imagine these perfect environments where, um, money can just flow and be hidden, but there's all of these factors, as you say, the liquidity of the central bank in this case and so forth. I was just thinking about your comments earlier about you know, this question I put to you about privacy and security. You talked about the need of the rule of law and how it gets played out here. I was thinking about an article by one of our reporters, Sander Handagama, uh, that was just out today, an excellent piece on forensics being used to actually clear the names of some Venezuelans who were wrongly accused of stealing funds from a local Bitcoin exchange. Almost like after the fact, getting their name cleared. Which struck me that this technology, it's multiple layers in which this transparency can be used, right? It can be used as a tool for law enforcement, but arguably also as a tool for defense, which I think is just very interesting. I just want to make that point. But at the same time, like to think through, like as this conversation gets more and more sophisticated, as politicians and and leaders start to understand what the transparency of this information means, how that might shift us to a different conversation around what exactly our surveillance system should be. And so i just love to get your thoughts on this because I think, you know, I remember also when I was at MIT, you and I at some point had a conversation about how might we use forensics to create a much more liberal KYC system. So you don't have to heavily identify every single person and, and therefore exclude, you know, billions of people from the financial system who can't live up to those standards, but at the same time allow for a much more well-informed analysis and therefore control of real risks to the financial system. I'd Love to get your thoughts on how you see that going, you know, whether it's the KYC regulations at FATF or some of the other aspects of our anti-terrorism laws or so forth.
3: Just back to the sort of nature of the technology, which I think is you know, really at the core of a, a lot of these issues is there's a permanence to the blockchain that people need to understand. You know, these transactions are there forever, and therefore, being able to really prove innocence or guilt in specific crimes is really sort of unprecedented when it comes to sort of the evidentiary process, right? Where if you think about DNA, or you think about bank records, or you think about anything else, you know there aren't actually that many permanent records of evidence that actually exist in the world. And so here in, in crypto with blockchain technology, like you actually have a complete set of records for all history about what has happened. With the right tooling, you can actually make the determination of whether something did or did not happen, which is actually a massive benefit to having a, a well-established rule of law with a court that can weigh up the evidence because the evidence will be there forever. So that's something that's like super important to to think about. And then if you think about the transparency element that actually you don't need to go and subpoena an entity to go and get the records. You don't need to ask permission to take a look at the blockchain. You just need to be able to analyze it with a set of tools that actually allows all entities that are involved in brokering these transactions to actually partner up together to be able to weed out illicit activity. And that's so different from the traditional financial system where each and every financial institution maintains all of its records about what its customers are doing, but cannot necessarily have a joined up picture of all of the transactions that go in between. And so, You have these silos of information in traditional finance and a lot of the regulation and a lot of the approaches to investigations have that in mind of you're needing to task that intermediary with maintaining records and providing reporting so that people can then join this up to other investigations that people are concerned about. When it comes to cryptocurrency, that transparency is actually there for everyone. You know we can think about having a more practical regime where actually the oversight depends on the transparency that's available to them, and they have a much better view on what general flows are happening, what typologies are emerging, what indicators can be shared among more participants to be able to actually weed out bad activity. And I think to your point, Michael, is that you know, we could have more financial inclusion if we lowered actually sort of the barriers to service providers enabling this type of activity. And finally, you know, I'll, I'll tie it all the way back to the sanctions point at the beginning and sort of what instigated this discussion is sanctions is about not only you know, excluding people from financial systems, but also it's about making sure that people are actually able to utilize the financial systems the US and allies control. It's both a function of the stick, which is, you know, exclusion from using our financial system, but it's also about expanding the use of financial systems that we are comfortable for people to use so that we can continue to understand how flows of money are working.
2: You know, I think that that DNA analogy is great in some ways and not in others. And I want to tease it out a little bit for, for those of our listeners, reviewers who might understand that example a bit. On the one hand, you know DNA evidence was first used by prosecutors, and it was used to launch crimes to prosecute people. And then it got picked up by defense, and it was used uh, very effectively by defense attorneys, as it is today, to kind of say. And the Venezuela example that you talked about, Michael, is a great one to say this couldn't possibly be the case because there's zero evidence that anything connected with these individuals was was used in that case. DNA evidence, and so. I do think the point there is that a lot of training was needed on the part of law enforcement, on the part of prosecutors and defense and others to understand what they were looking at and make sense of it and how it fits into the legal regimes in various countries in order to be effective. So I think we're going to have to see quite a bit of training and knowledge uh, provided to law enforcement and related others, right, like the judicial system and others to understand, you know, what does this mean and what does it not mean? And let's be careful about that and make sure that we are cutting precisely uh, to use this effectively as a tool you know, on on whatever side of the of the justice system that you happen to fall. I don't see a, a lot of uh, effort around that yet, so my hope is that we'll see more and more understanding of how critical a tool this actually can be. On the other side, I think it's similar in the sense that the no-fly list, when those first came out, you know, God forbid your name was Muhammad or Ali, because you were very likely to be swept up in uh, getting pulled off of planes and not being able to fly and having travel restrictions based on simply your name which was a common name and what DNA provides and similarly here what a block explorer kind of an address provides is something that's much more targeted and so it says this particular address has a systematic pattern of behavior and it's not that we think every address that also has these four numbers in it is similar and that's as crazy as the idea that somebody who might have the same name as someone else is engaging in similar activity but the tool is not precise at all. And so here we have precision tools that can help us ensure that we are preserving individual privacy. We're preserving and not basically violating the civil rights of people who are not in any way connected to certain kinds of activity, but happen to look a certain way. And so I think that when we examine and explore the kind of tool we have here for this kind of precision activity, I think it's extremely important to to consider that. On the other hand of it, I think, There's also the abuse of DNA, right? That's certainly something that's been happening as well uh, in the world. And we should not in any way presume that we won't see a similar exploitation of information as it gets more and more commonplace to use it. I can't say that I could imagine in the short time I was thinking about this just right now what that might look like, but I don't think I would have imagined what it looked like in the DNA case either. And so it's just something for all of us to be mindful of and aware of. How do we ensure that we are properly educating the broader community beyond those who are experts in how any of this works technically or otherwise on what this is and what it isn't and what it can effectively be used for. But Jonathan, it's such a pleasure to have you on to explain a lot of this to us and to our listeners and viewers to get a sense of when we talk about transparency on a blockchain, what does that mean exactly and what can it be used to do? And also really interesting conversation about how we still think about the preservation of privacy, individual security, and I would argue all of that predicates civil rights as something that is of paramount importance in the United States but ideally in other jurisdictions as well so thanks so much for all of that
1: so it's been a great pleasure i think a really really timely conversation and and one that i think hopefully in addition to putting this particular conflict into focus really gets people to think about some of these broader issues about what we really want as a society in terms of access privacy inclusion on the one hand and you know security and the rule of law on the other. So really fascinating conversation. Greatly appreciate it. We'll have to get you back on the show again sometime soon. That's all we have time for. For now, everybody, thank you so much for being with us. Make sure that you come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagine. If you're not, subscribe to this on your favorite podcast show or watch us on Coindesk TV. I'm Michael Casey. Bye for now.
0: you've been listening to coindesk's money reimagined this episode featured sheila warren michael j casey and guest jonathan levin our theme song is shepherd this episode was produced and edited by michelle mousseau with additional production support from eleanor paul and announcements by adam b levine have any questions or comments please send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line money reimagined or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.